we were hearing before from Sir John Eliot how Philip II had to send huge fleets, heavily protected and guarded, to bring the bullion back. And Oxford just clicks its fingers. <laughs> In comes the gold and silver, no? Uh, poor old Philip, he got something wrong there, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, this second panel has got Gerard Fagirri, Charles Powell, and uh, William Chislett. And the sort of broad theme is old myths, new realities. Does it? <laughs> I want to. Um, Giles Paxton, now man in Madrid last night mentioned uh, Raymond Carr, Sir Raymond Carr. Could I just spend two seconds on him? Because he, I think he's fundamentally important. Uh, Raymond Carr was a historian. He wrote a very important book about 19th century Spain, which was published in the late 1960s. Uh, he was warden of St. Anthony's for 20 years, and those were the fiesta years at St. Anthony's. Uh, during the late 60s uh, and early 70s, a number of uh, Spaniards went to Oxford and uh, studied with Raymond, uh, studied about Spanish history. And what is very important was that I think that Raymond, I was a pupil of Raymond, Charles was a pupil of Raymond, Professor Manuel Ortega, who was somewhere over there, was also one, and I dare say there are others in this gathering. Uh, what was very important was that Raymond taught us all that Spain was not a different country, an exceptional country, a problem country, a basket case country, an exotic country, etc., etc. Uh, when Spaniards were generally appalled and embarrassed about 19th century Spain, its upheavals, Raymond said, well, actually, other things were happening elsewhere. Uh, notably in France, uh, Italy and Germany obviously as well. The 19th century wasn't a joyride for anyone except for the UK. Uh, and it helped Spaniards to break down that myth of an exceptional history, and it was terribly, terribly important. I can't emphasize that enough to you. When, um, in 1982, there was a change of government in Spain, uh, Spain, by this time, democracy was established. The education minister in the new government was a pupil of Raymond's. The head of the National Library was a pupil of Raymond's. The head of the main research center, Professor Varela, was a pupil of Raymond's. Uh, the undersecretary of state for um, culture was a pupil of Raymond's. The Israeli ambassador to Madrid was a <laughs> pupil of Raymond's. Uh, uh, there were a number of uh, full-time lecturers and numberless uh, professors and numbers of lecturers who would become full-time professors were also studied under Raymond. I can't think of a single Oxford academic who has had such an impact on the texture of a society as Raymond Carr did in Spain. And three years ago, a number of us, certainly William and Charles and others, uh, we basically filled a plane and went to St. Anthony's, where Margaret McMillan, the current warden, was very kind to us. 
we all charged into the Charbel boathouse and had a huge dinner. And then we sat down in St. Anthony's the next day and spent a lot of time delivering papers on myths and realities in Spain in honor of Raymond's 90th, and, uh, and he was very grateful for that. So uh, when we've just heard about this excellence of Oxford and what Oxford gives to the world, I mean, we can actually personalize it and make it very, very clear. So I'm glad for all those clicking fingers and the bullions coming in. Eh? May long continue. Now, um, I'm going to ask Esperanza Aguirre to speak first. The Chancellor has just introduced you and give you a thing. I mean, I like Esperanza very much. Uh, I've, <laughs> I've known her for, what, 30 years or more, I've known all my life. <laughs> and um, and we're, we're very honored to have her. And then I will introduce um, Charles and, uh, and William and basically say why it's important that they should be here and join the discussion. But Esperanza, it's yours. Thank you very much. Well, excelentísimo señor embajador del Reino Unido en Madrid, Right Honorable Lord Patton of Barnes, Chancellor of the University of Oxford, dear friends. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you, it is an honor, for all of us madrileños that you have chosen our city for your European Union. Thank you and welcome. And thank you to Andrew Moore for his kind remarks about Madrid. We are sorry, it's too cold today. <laughs> Quite a few Oxford alumni, uh, such as Tom and Charles, live and work in Madrid. And as for William, he had the great fortune to be born in Oxford. They are all very much madrileños. They will be your best guides to Madrid and the best sources of information of Spain today. I'm very grateful to my friend Lord Patton of Barnes for his invitation to attend this academic program. It has long been a pleasure for me to know Sir John Elliot, and I'm so sorry I missed him this morning. And now, uh, because Tom said, please be short, let me tell you a couple of things about my country. It is true that we are in the middle of a profound economic crisis, not quite the bubonic plague, as it has said this morning here. Uh, and it is true that many Spaniards are unemployed. And it is true that this crisis has somewhat demoralized us. But in the last decades, and especially when uh, Jose Maria Aznar was a prime minister between 1996 and 2004, Spain has made huge economic and social advances. We are still twice as prosperous as we were during the, our last recession at the beginning of the 1990s. And this gives us hope for a future recovery. Our infrastructures, are a good example of our progress. Spain has now a best-in-the-class highway and fast-speed train network. And this is a clear competitive advantage for business and also for tourism. Spain is a global power in the tourism industry. We have the climate and the space. We have landscapes, mountain ranges, and coastlines. 
We have a magnificent cultural heritage in our monuments, our churches, and museums. And last but not least, we have very good wines and a superb cuisine. Spain is a very attractive place to visit, to live in, and to work in. It is also a safe place. Security is good. One of Spain's strengths is the positive disposition of the immense majority of Spaniards in the midst of our current recession to get on with the job in hand and remain confident that prosperity will return. Because since the restoration of democracy, Spain has become an increasingly open society and as such open to opportunities. One cause for optimism is that for the first time in our history, many of our qualified young people are working outside Spain. I am certain that the increasing number of young Spaniards holding good jobs abroad will have a very positive effect in our economy and on the manner that Spaniards face future challenges. And I can't help adding that what really makes our Spaniards happy and proud and fills us with optimism is the success of a national football team, <laughs> which has now for several years been the best in the world. Many of us think that if we are capable of winning in a sport that the whole world plays, surely we will be able to emerge from the current crisis, uh, economic crisis and once more create more jobs than any other country in Europe, as it occurred during the Adnats Premiership. And dear friends, as you must have noticed, I'm full of optimism for Spain, despite our huge problems. Spain was too exotic for its own good over the past two centuries, when it endured countless political upheavals. It was a very exciting country for those who looked at us from abroad. Too exciting. And because of that, it attracted many British travelers, romantic travelers, and romantic writers, like Tom Burns. <laughs> he discussed it in his book, Hispanomania. But since the restoration of democracy in 1977, we have striven to be less exotic, more normal, more boring. Charles Powell has written in depth about Spanish peaceful political transition, and William Chislett has closely studied the growth of the Spanish economy. I think the result has been pretty satisfactory. We will continue on this path, although we will be less exotic for colorful British writers and travelers. And let me finish by making a confession. I am a huge Anglophile, and one of the things I mostly envy about the United Kingdom is its university education. I would copy it if I could. The Chancellor said I am a politician. I am a former politician. Uh, I stepped back uh, in recent September. But I would copy the university system in Great Britain, if I could. You have the best university system in the world, 
and your university, your university is its best exhibit. If Spain had an Oxford, I would be even more optimistic about our future. Thank you very much for your attention, and I look forward to the debate. Thank you. Charles uh, is the, the director of the Elcano Institute, which is public policy uh, and, and foreign international relations and foreign affairs. Uh, he's uh, written a lot, uh, and what he's written is, is probably the best on Spain's transition, on King Juan Carlos, on the socialist government, and he is a genuine authority on the Spain of the last 40 years of the transition of Spain, its political miracle, and, uh, and just the person to, to get into the theme of old myths and particularly new realities. Thank you very much, Tom. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor and a pleasure to have been asked to take part in this session. Events like these, I suppose, were designed to bring people together, particularly people who haven't seen each other in a long time. And uh, I'm very pleased that this has certainly been the case as far as I'm concerned. I've um, been reunited with people I haven't seen for over 30 years. I'm very moved and, and happy uh, to be able to take part in this event. Oxford has been very much on my mind. I've spent 16, 17 years of my life there. I think I'm the only person in this very large room which has four Oxford affiliations. Can anyone beat that? No, good. Um, that's Univ, Corpus, Merton, and St. Anthony's, for those of you who really want to know. And Oxford has been on my mind this week as well, for other reasons. Um, uh, Giles Paxman came to our institute on Monday and gave an excellent talk on um, Britain and the European Union. Not a comfortable topic, but uh, he handled that brilliantly. And on Friday, we had the pleasure of having um, Lord Patton with us. As you know, our Chancellor is, is wonderfully erudite. He knows everything there is to know about China. And he informed us, for example, that the Chinese leadership have recently been asked to read Tocqueville's L'Ancien Régime et la Révolution. And he very uh, wisely um, remarked that they would be much better off if they had been asked to read um, Democracy in America. He also informed us that if you're wearing a silk tie, there's a 60% chance that it may be made in China. This made me think of our Oxford College ties in the 1970s. There's a 90% chance that they were made out of bright, shiny British polyester, I suppose. So uh, for the, I can see someone already turning around, looking, <laughs> looking at your labels. Um, the Vice-Chancellor quite rightly said that the key to Oxford is still the tutorial system. And I was very fortunate in my first term at Oxford to have Frances Lannan as my uh, history tutor. She introduced me to the intricacies of Spanish 18th century uh, political history. Um, so she was taught by Raymond Carr, and I was taught by her. And I'm very honored uh, to form part of that uh, tradition. Um, we've been asked to talk about uh, myths and realities in the Spanish-Europe relationship. Um, and if I can very briefly say a little about um, to start off with why, um, how, how Europe has been perceived by Spaniards in the 20th century. And if I may, I'll pick, off, uh, pick up very briefly from where John Eliot left off. Um, and that is by stressing the fact that this period of decline that he uh, talked about, uh, to some extent, 
um, accelerated in the 18th century. When historians try to put their finger on the turning point in this process of decline, I suppose the Spanish War of, of, of uh, Succession and the Treaty of Utrecht of uh, 1713 in particular is, is most often comes to mind. That, of course, is when Spain lost Gibraltar as well, um, which is still prominent on, prominent on some people's minds. Um, it's, it's a shame to, to think of the 18th century exclusively in terms of decline. Um, the brochure, the very elegant brochure that was produced for this event, um, quotes W.H. Auden's rather dismissive um, idea of Spain. I think that's taken from his famous 1937 uh, poem on Spain, which he, by the way, didn't include in his own completed works. Uh, complete works. So I think there's a good reason for that. But anyway, um, I prefer, I much prefer Edmund Burke's much simpler, more elegant, Spain, a whale stranded on the coast of Europe. Um, and that gives you an idea of how Spain was perceived in the 18th century. And of course, the French encyclopedists were also extremely dismissive of Spain. They believed that Spain had nothing to offer to mainstream European culture, history, art, or political thinking. Uh, Jovellanos, uh, of course, is a great exception to that. And that was precisely, um, he, his book was the uh, topic of those uh, tutorials that uh, Francis Lannan uh, provided in, the, in my first term at uh, Oxford, which I will never forget. The 19th century uh, has done, did a lot to give Spain a bad name, and you will have noticed there was a bit of a tension already between what Esperanza Aguirre and Tom were saying. Um, Tom spoke about this anti-exceptionalist uh, paradigm, those historians who have refused to regard Spain as different, while Esperanza Aguirre mentioned the fact that um, the country had, in fact, had a rather colorful um, existence in the 19th century. And indeed, it was rather colorful. Uh, five prime ministers were murdered between uh, the early 19th century and, and uh, 1973. There were four royal abdications, two changes of dynasty, seven military uprisings, and of course, um, seven constitutions. Not many countries have had seven constitutions in the 19th century. But Tom is also right, um, because the history of the 19th century is not just a history of decline. It was also a period of considerable stability and growth, particularly after 1876. But the point I want to stress is that as a result of this rather um, exciting history, um, not incompatible with growth and stability, uh, Spain was largely excluded from the European mainstream. As of, if you like, Trafalgar, 18, 1805, certainly um, the Napoleonic invasion, Spain became a plaything in the hands of the major European powers. And this, I think, has uh, left a very strong legacy, a, a legacy of irrelevance, a legacy of, of isolation. Of course, the Franco regime added very significantly to that. There was probably no other country in the world that was um, so absolutely um, excluded from the European mainstream after World War II. Spain didn't enjoy the benefits of martial aid, it wasn't allowed to join any of the European institutions, and of course, was not allowed to join in the process of European integration in its early stages. Nevertheless, in the 1960s, I think there was an interesting phenomenon which is often overlooked. There was a convergence, both among uh, Francoists and anti-Francoists, with regard to Europe. Francoist technocrats in the 1960s began to look to Europe as a source of inspiration for their modernizing project. They associated um, Europe with industrialization, urbanization, rapid economic growth. And let me remind you that Spain grew faster than any country in the world except Japan between 1960 and 1973. So Europe was a model for them. But of course, it was also very much a model for anti-Francoists who saw in Europe the 
incarnation of uh, freedom and, and the democratic values that they had been uh, deprived of. After Franco's death in 1975, Europe became an extremely powerful symbol, both for the political and economic elites and also for the public at large, for the population at large. I would argue that, first of all, it provided a model, democracy plus what in Europe is generally described as the social market economy. Secondly, it provided an incentive. Um, EU membership would only be achieved even when democratization had been completed. And let me remind you that um, the EU's enlargement policy can probably be described and has rightly been described as the most effective uh, foreign policy tool of the 20th century. Thirdly, it provided guarantees for those on the right who were apprehensive about the possibility of social upheaval and radical reform. Of course, the EEC, the EU, um, is based on the principle of private property, due process, and so on. And for progressives, left-wingers in Spanish society, the EU provided the guarantees, badly needed guarantees, uh, in the area of social and political freedoms. And our Basque and Catalan friends, of course, were also very pro-European. Basque and Catalan nationalists, many of whom were Christian Democrats in those days, I don't think they are nowadays, but they were in the 1970s and the 80s, they strongly believed in the principle of subsidiarity, which of course has its origins in Catholic social doctrine. And they strongly believed, although they didn't always say this in public, that Spanish membership of the EU would weaken the Spanish state. In other words, that the Spanish state would somehow be hollowed out by um, sharing competence, competences downwards towards the regions and upwards towards the European Union. So they were quite happy to join this Europe, which of course at the time continued to pay lip service to the idea of a Europe of the regions. We don't hear much about that nowadays, but that was still prominent in the, in the 70s. Let me also add that um, accession negotiations were extremely long, protracted and difficult. They lasted from 1977 to 1986. And therefore when me membership finally happened in 86, it came as a great relief. Felipe González has acknowledged that the best uh, political advice he ever received in his life came from a rather unlikely quarter, namely Margaret Thatcher. Um, in 1983, she had a conversation with him, which um, he obviously remembered for the rest of his life, has remembered, in which she basically said, for God's sake, don't try to negotiate accession, uh, the, the, the terms of, the, uh, of Spain's accession to the European Union, that, that's pointless. This is a club you have to join. Do what I do. Once you join, you will have veto powers and you can be as bloody-minded as you like. <laughs> and he followed that advice with great success. EU membership did not disappoint Spaniards. First of all, it was seen as a great political achievement. After decades, perhaps centuries of political isolation, Spain was able to join the European mainstream this very selective democratic club. And let me insist that it was this political democratic element that was foremost on people's minds. Secondly, of course, as Espan Faguire has mentioned, um, EC membership, EU membership, brought with it unprecedented economic change. Um, thanks to the single market, also, of course, thanks to cohesion policy. Spectacular economic growth between 86 and 93, briefly interrupted during the 93-94 crisis and resumed later until 2007, until quite recently. Spaniards also discovered that solidarity is a two-way street. Yes, they received cohesion funds from Brussels, but they also paid a very high price for German reunification. Um, the, the recession in 93-94 was largely um, a consequence of that. In other words, solidarity does not just mean receiving plenty of, of funds from, from Brussels. 
And finally, uh, thanks to EU membership, Spain was able to project its interests and its uh, priorities abroad, further afield, above all in the Mediterranean and in Latin America. To some extent, Spain was able to Europeanize those interests. Let me very quickly turn to today. Um, Lord Patton mentioned the fact that the Eurobarometer does detect this growing disaffection, growing Spanish disaffection. Having said that, though, um, Spain remains, both the elites and the population remain extremely committed to the European, the so-called European project. And this is, I think, due to two factors, not always easily understood from Britain. First of all, loss of political sovereignty has never been an issue to Spaniards. They can't get rid of their sovereignty fast enough. Um, this is very important to understand. And this, of course, is very directly related to this historical legacy of the Franco regime that I discussed earlier. Secondly, the democratic deficit has never been an issue here either. Probably, or at least until recently. Probably, first of all, because democratic institutions were very new. Um, there, were, there was an absence of strong, for example, recent parliamentary traditions, very strong 19th century tradition, but not a strong late 20th century one. And secondly, because supranational European institutions have always been held in extremely high, re high regard. I know this baffles British um, observers, but people actually like the European Commission in Spain. Um, what impact has the current crisis had on this? Yes, it's true, people are much more critical of European institutions, but their fundamental criticism is that Europe isn't working as well as it ought to, that the European governance model is incomplete, that the single currency governance structure is faulty. So by and large, most Spaniards would actually like more Europe and not, not less Europe as an answer to their current problems. And polls, by the way, suggest that support for the euro remains extremely uh, powerful. One final point about the Catalan issue, which Francis touched on very briefly and has been mentioned since. Catalan nationalist leaders have discovered, to, they, to their surprise, they claim, that the European integration project is incompatible with secession. Um, they somehow believed, I suppose, that by presenting themselves as great Europeanists, as staunch defenders of the Euro and staunch defenders of the European project, somehow this would gain them the acceptance of um, European public opinion and European governments. This is uh, simply not the case. European leaders do not want um, Spain to break up. And I would argue, in fact, that secessionism is fundamentally incompatible with the European integration model. Because if you are incapable of exercising solidarity towards other Spaniards, it's highly unlikely that you will be able to exercise solidarity towards other Europeans. Thank you very much. I'll leave it there.